I never forget the instructor who said, oh, I, I don't need to teach every single thing in this rather lengthy textbook. I only need to teach the things that are going to help my students get to the intermediate mid-level. And that was a huge, this is where we call, um, we talk about our colleagues not being married to the book. The book is not the curriculum, you know. The book is just a tool to help you reach your outcomes. You're listening to Speaking of Language, a podcast recorded at the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. Each week, we explore a topic related to language pedagogy and second language acquisition. This week on Speaking of Language. Kathy Bauman dives into reverse design and how to better center language curricula and lessons around the goals and needs of students. Welcome to a new episode of Speaking of Language. I'm Angelica Kramer, the director of the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. And I'm Sam Lupowitz, the LRC's media manager. Today, we are joined by Dr. Katherine Bauman. She is on campus as part of our monthly LRC speaker series, and we will extend our conversations on reverse design and its role in curricular and programmatic articulation. Welcome to Speaking of Language, Kathy. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So we are so delighted to have you in our studio today. Let's start out by having you briefly introduce yourself to our listeners and share with us your background and your own path with languages. Oh, it's a good question. I just um, had lunch with a couple of grad students from the German department, and we were talking about exactly that. Ah. I have sort of a circuitous route to Mm -hmm. language, to, to where I am now. I started out as an elementary school teacher. I did not know that. Yes, it's ah. true. That was my first uh, first bachelor's degree. Uh-huh. And um, my first job was seventh grade, teaching Ooh. seventh grade, the worst year of my life. <laughs> <laughs> so far. I was far. about to say, that yes. is tough. Yes. Well, I think ninth grade is quite something, too. Well, I was... Seventh is, yeah. yeah. Wow. I was a horrible seventh grader myself, so <laughs> it was karmic payback. In many respects. Anyway, after that year was over, I retreated back into school and I started taking German. Hmm. I had already taken Spanish in grade school and French in uh, grade school and one year in high school, Mm -hmm. French in college. Hmm. But I wanted to do something new and I'm German-American Sure. many generations ago. So I started with German and got the opportunity about a year later to go to um, Salzburg Mm. for six weeks in the summer to the Salzburg Summer School with a Title VI grant out of the Center for, for, um, must be Central European Studies Mm -hmm. at the University of Minnesota. Okay. And I wanted to stay on for an academic year, and the University of Minnesota, where I was a part-time student, had a program in Erlangen, outside of Nuremberg. Mm -hmm. So I was able to be a participant in that program. So this is 1982. It's um, before the wall came down, Mm -hmm. Cold War. Wow. And you have to remember there were 250,000 American servicemen stationed in southern Germany at that time. Yep. So there were a lot of of American soldiers, Mm -hmm. a lot of American families, and a lot of American kids. So there's an entire system of schools called the Department of Defense Schools, Mm -hmm. DODS. So I became a substitute teacher oh. on the at the um, American school in Erlangen yeah. and did that for two years huh. and was able to stay in Germany, live in Germany for a nice. couple of years. Yeah. 
when I came back, I started a master's in German literature, also mm-hmm. at the University of Minnesota. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't love my literature studies, mm. but I loved teaching language mm-hmm. as a teaching assistant, and I was quite good at it. Yeah. So I finished my master's and then um, decided I wanted to switch over to the Ph.D. program, which at the University of Minnesota lives in the Department of Curriculum Instruction, the College of Education. Mm-hmm. And at that time, I remember having a conversation with the chair of German. It was so it must have been about 1987 who said, you'll never get a job in a language department with a Ph.D. in <laughs> education. And it was huh. pretty true at that time, but mm-hmm. within a few years it changed. Yeah as language programs started hiring language program directors. Yeah. So I did that. PhD program. Um, I worked at ACTFL for a couple of years huh. as yeah. workshop director. Nice. And then I got my first uh, academic job at Wayne State University mm-hmm. in Detroit. Yeah. And then my next job at the University of Chicago mm-hmm. as the LPD. Yeah. And I've been there since, that was 1999. I did that, played that role for about 20 years, and then became the Language Center Director mm-hmm. 10 years ago in 2013. Wonderful. Yeah. It's crazy. Well, and your learning of languages certainly has not stopped. It's true. I am learning <laughs> Swedish currently mm-hmm. for fun. Nice. Um, mm-hmm. It's really fun to be in the role of a learner Yeah, and sort of experience all the things I tell people to do yeah. <laughs> when they're teaching. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's been really insightful in a way to... Yeah. To be in a different, to be in the learner role. Absolutely, yeah. Remind ourselves of what what that is like. What that's like, exactly. For sure. Yeah. Wonderful. So let's talk about your workshop. Um, you introduced the Chicago approach to proficiency-oriented, assessment-driven, reverse-designed language pedagogy. What is reverse design, and what does the Chicago approach look like? Sure. So um, when I'm doing workshops like the one here and many others, I like to start um, to define reverse design by asking the group, um, and I'll ask both of you, what's the best way to get there? Should I take an Uber or ride a bike? It depends. It depends where you're headed. (laughs) Depends. Um, I don't know if I'd want to ride a bike around here. It's pretty hilly. (laughs) So that's the question. And the answer is you don't don't know how to answer that question if you don't know where I'm going. Mm Yeah. So in the same the same plays the same role in language teaching. You need to know where you're going. You need to know what your outcomes are for your learners in order to decide how to get there because we make thousands of choices as teachers um, every year as we plan curriculum and as we teach. And knowing our destination in terms of the outcomes helps you make better choices. We would say intentional choices mm-hmm. and also knowing how your outcomes are going to be tested also informs those choices. So that it, those are all the pieces of our approach, knowing the outcomes, knowing um, beforehand, which is the reverse design piece, knowing how you're going to test them, that's the assessment piece. Mm-hmm. And then proficiency-oriented, because we do use proficiency guidelines, the actual proficiency mm-hmm. guidelines to um, define our outcomes. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. So what are the benefits of this approach? You already highlighted some aspects, and are there also potential pitfalls? Well, the benefits are um, are many, and in, in the all the work we've done with instructors on our campus and also across 
North America with a, a larger melon project mm-hmm. that, that also helped us really um, create this approach or design or really, I would also say, refine this approach. We found a few things. First of all, our, um, our premise that many instructors don't have a lot of hands-on training with assessment. Sure. And then that, that yep. delivering assess, both assessment literacy and the knowledge of how to design really good performance-based assessments uh, is needed mm-hmm. and it's beneficial. We've also found, and my colleagues have, have researched this, that this indeed does inform the choices that our colleagues make when they're looking at their curriculum. Mm-hmm. Um, we've also found this is something we didn't expect and weren't even looking for, that having having defined the outcomes and designed the assessment and then turning to the curriculum delivers agency to mm-hmm. a lot of these instructors. And sure. we, we work primarily with instructors of Lictals who have often very little pedagogical training and are sometimes the only instructor of a language yeah. on their campus, yeah. are sometimes or might be literature, trained in literature or other things. And this gives them real agency and real ex- a real sense of expertise about their curriculum mm-hmm. and the way they teach and real profession, a real professional identity. And that's been, a, in some ways, the most rewarding result mm-hmm. of, of this work. Yeah. Well, and we have a few colleagues here who have benefited from some of your workshops. And- that's true. Um, certainly have had lots of positive feedback from them. and I'm glad. Yeah, they also mentioned that it was really enlightening for them to just approach the entire process from a different angle. Exactly. Well, So to piggyback off of that, can you talk a bit more about feedback you've received from language faculty who have applied this model? And how do students react also? So we don't, We ha- that's a good question. We have not, we have not, um, polled students, and I don't know if any of our colleagues have mm-hmm. polled their students. We um, we regularly solicit feedback at the end of our workshops from our sure. colleagues. We get this sort of instant, well, post-workshop feedback about how they feel they really know how to make choices, and now they really feel for the first time they know why they're doing what they're doing, or they know what it is they want to change. Mm-hmm. Um, in their curriculum. And I just got a um, an email from a colleague who teaches Turkish. It's uh, not here. It's at another institution um, who, for the first time with real commitment, was going to implement or is implementing a, um, a hybrid flipped hmm. classroom design and mm-hmm. having her students do the sort of practice and drill work on their own bef- so that she can use classroom time sure. for proficiency-oriented or communicative mm-hmm. activities. And she said that she really, she always questioned doing this and questioned um, asking students to do this work on their own. Um, She was concerned the students would feel like she was asking them to do work that she should be doing, Mm. um, which surprised me. I actually never heard that perspective before. But she was really committed to it because she could see the benefit of using this very precious face-to-face time for these activities. And she said it's it's really transformed what's going on in her classroom. And she can see her students, even with quite a difficult language, um, Turkish, making real progress in Mm -hmm. ways she had not seen before. Mm -hmm. So that's one example, I suppose. So when there are colleagues who may be the only person in their program who are the program, they have a lot of control over their curriculum. Mm -hmm. Do you have advice for language educators 
who are given a specific curriculum that they have to work with, are there still possibilities for them to make changes to tasks or assessments without completely upending the materials or the curriculum that they're being handed? We encounter that a lot hmm. in across languages. The result of having, remember that each instructor, when they start their work with us, starts by doing an actual OPI workshop to understand the levels. And the mm -hmm. first thing we have them do is to design an assessment. So let's say you're teaching language X and you design an end of first year proficiency assessment for skills, mm -hmm. proficiency, you assign proficiency levels. That assessment is independent of your curriculum, which is not to say your curriculum is not preparing students to perform on sure. that assessment, but we're not testing what we've taught. We're testing mm -hmm. students' ability to function with mm -hmm. the language. So that test and its results become evidence of how well the curriculum is working. Mm -hmm. So if instructors have concerns or questions about the curriculum they must teach, if they can argue for the evidence of the proficiency assessment, underperformance mm -hmm. in a skill, for example, they have real evidence for that underperformance, not just their opinion about a curriculum sure. or their their um, preference for another approach. They have real evidence, and it's it's powerful. It's it's po presents a possibility of a really powerful argument. Mm -hmm. And most most chairs, most um, deans do listen to arguments with real evidence. We, mm -hmm. We've seen this happen in a, certainly, especially one big program that it, that posited pretty high listening comprehension uh, levels and found something very, very different than they expected. Mm -hmm. And it did it did force them to look at their curriculum and try mm -hmm. to figure out what was going on mm -hmm. there. Interesting. What are the effects on programmatic articulation? Have you seen major changes in some of the language programs? We have. Um, we've seen changes in just the courses that are taught. We've seen uh, colleagues grapple with, for example, um, an Arabic program trying to choose... Um, a different textbook, mm -hmm. and also wondering how to fit in um, non-standard Arabic listening, for example, into their curriculum where when they, when they realized that a reasonable set of outcomes for the second year was intermediate mid instead of thinking they could get them close to advanced, it opened up space in their curriculum to, first of all, do some listening with non-standard Arabic dialects. And also, I never forget the instructor who said, oh, I I don't need to teach every single thing in this rather lengthy textbook. Mm -hmm. I only need to teach the things that are going to help my students get to the intermediate mid-level. Mm -hmm. And that was a huge, this is where we call, um, we talk about our colleagues um, not being married to the book. Mm. Oh, yes. The book is not the curriculum. Yeah, yeah, right. you know? exactly. The book is exactly. just a tool to yeah. help you reach your outcomes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So where can our listeners start today if they want to apply this approach or if they want to consider reverse design or a more proficiency-based approach in general? What suggestions do you have for them? We have a lot of information on our website. It's the um, languages.uchicago.edu. There is information about our, our workshops, which are still running, mm -hmm. um, and we are going to be running a full slate of workshops this coming summer. So if, if there are individuals who would like to participate, there are possibilities there. 
Um, we also have some um, some of our articles and other um, talks or webinars available on our website, and that's a place for people to begin to you know educate mm-hmm. themselves. Like so many other colleagues, we would like to publish a book or some kind of reference to really get this, get what we've learned and get this um, approach out. Um, that will be a lot of work. I think I think we intend to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a little, there's be a lot of time before that actually appears. So I think educating oneself about a proficiency assessment is maybe a mm-hmm. first yep. step yep. because that's what really informs the process, yep. the rest of the process. Yeah, and then reflecting on what's currently happening and exactly. potentially making change based making on changes. that. Making yeah. changes. And then making changes and then testing again. Mm-hmm. Because if you do change your curriculum, let's say you implement a new listening program, how do you know whether it made a difference unless you give the same assessments and see if sure. there's any change in the performance? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually, your approach is going to be published in the forthcoming book that I just so happen to be co-editing. It's true. Um, sharing less commonly taught languages in higher education, collaboration and innovation. That should be coming out in 2024. Um, so there is a That's chapter right. about less commonly taught languages and the approach. That, so, is, that will be the place where the approach is first being published. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. Yes. So we will Very, be referring a lot of people to yes. that volume. Great. <laughs> exactly. Which will be open source, by the way. So Wonderful. Thanks to um, another um, Mellon grant through Michigan State University. Right. So right. That is all wonderful work. But listeners, definitely stay tuned for that. Kathy, what else is happening at the University of Chicago Language Center? Anything you'd like to share or just plug? Um, I do. I would like to plug one other program we just put into place a couple years ago uh, in response to all of our concerns about language enrollments Mm. um, and general shift away from language study while there's a bigger commitment to global engagement and international engagement. So we, as a result of a a bunch of committee work that went on right before um, the COVID epidemic, we created a program program called uh, Global Honors. It's it's an honors designation in the undergraduate college. It's a place for undergraduates to collect all the global things they do. It includes language study, language proficiency, um, study abroad, internships abroad, uh, doing research with faculty. We, we tried to be very, very broad in um, listing all the components that could signal this kind of engagement. They receive different point values for each one and then can be awarded global honors, which goes on their transcript. They also receive a certificate. And it's really becoming part of the fabric of the college. Mm. Interesting, I think one of the really effective things about it is as more students are pursuing it, they're asking for more languages to offer more opportunities. Mm. And that's pushing my colleagues to offer more proficiency tests Mm. and more language across the curriculum courses. Mm -hmm. So instead of me telling my colleagues, please do more for the students it's coming bottom up from the students yeah wonderful well the work that you have been doing and that you continue to do at chicago is amazing Um, thank you i have benefited myself from some of your workshops certainly learned a lot bringing those things back here so thank you for the important work that you are doing for this field it is it is really wonderful 
Kathy, before we sign off, we'd like to ask you to share a word in a language you speak, you love, you are learning, you may want to learn, that doesn't exist in English, but you wish it did. What is that word? Yes, I gave this some serious thought, actually, <laughs> which, of course, we like to think about words in this in this world. And I think the word I'm going to throw out there, even though it 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 does exist in uh, English, kind of, but it's a borrowed word, and it's the Swedish word for archipelago, and um, the Swedish word is "hvelgård," which <laughs> means um, like an island farm. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. or a rock farm, because of course when you when you see an archipelago, that's kind of what it looks like. All these rocks sticking up, growing up out of the water, and um, the word I had to look it up last night myself. <laughs> the word archipelago is a Greek word. It comes. It's the word um, from which the Aegean Sea derives. Mm-hmm. Um, pelago and then lago course, becomes a mm. word meaning an o- a lake or a mm-hmm, sea. Mm-hmm. And it means the chief or the main um, body of water, which mm. is the Aegean Sea. So um, so archipelago for us came to mean this, a string of islands or small islands. Yeah. But I like the Swedish word better because it's such a visual, mm-hmm. such a visual word. Say it for us one more time. I'm going to get criticized about <laughs> my S sound in Swedish. <laughs> is so hard. Helgård. Uh-huh. Very nice. Thank you. Tak. Uh, Well, this has been great. Thank you so much for speaking of language with us today, Kathy. You're so welcome. Next week, we will speak with two student participants from the recent World Languages Day at Cornell. Until then. Auf Wiederhören. The Language Resource Center is located on the ground floor of Stimson Hall on Cornell's main campus in Ithaca, New York. Check us out on the web at lrc.cornell.edu. Or follow Cornell LRC on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Speaking of Language is produced by Angelica Kramer and Sam Lupowitz. Recorded by Sam Lupowitz. Original music by Sam Lupowitz, Dan Gable, and Joe Gibson. Thanks also to the College of Arts and Sciences at Cornell University. As a reminder, the ideas and opinions expressed on this podcast do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Sciences or any other official entity of Cornell University. We thank our listeners. And do stay tuned for our next episode.